you're listening to Just One of the Guys. We're even playing the Beatles at the beginning of the show. Won't guarantee that Scott Gardner listens to this. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Sean Ingle and my job is to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004 with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. This time out we're not covering Guy Gardner but we are covering another ancillary character in the DC universe, namely Wally West the Flash. We're covering the second part of the Prestige format series, uh, The Flash, Green Lantern, Faster Friends. And this time we figure out what happened with the whole Alien X thing and what he was actually planning on doing. And there's some gender swapping. Well, really not gender swapping. There's just hero swapping. It sounds dirtier than it actually is. But, of course, we also have our prerequisite Green Lantern issue, in which Green Lantern is ringless, well, not ringless, he's powerless on an alien world, being attacked by a brutal, trained killer. Will Green Lantern make it out alive? Will he be able to convince this person not to kill him? Will he, in turn, have to end up killing this person who's trying to kill him? Is it more convoluted than I'm making it out to be? Very much so. In fact, uh, I need to script this a lot better. In fact, I probably need to script this anyway, but it's no matter. It's almost done with the music. In fact, we're going to segue right into the obligatory promos for a couple of podcasts that I know that you all should be listening to and that you all would really love if you did listen to them. So after we get done with the promos, we'll come back with our coverage of Green Lantern number 85. Grom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, Gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, 
and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. He joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. Okay, so Robin didn't always have the best fashion sense. But there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided by some Bat fans. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years, and that's why I've decided to give him his due in Taking Flight. Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the Boy Wonder, and every episode I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader, as well as in solo adventures, whether it be as Robin, Nightwing, Red Robin, or the Red Hood. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net, and you can find additional show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. So join me, Tom Panneries, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in comicdom. And we're back. And this time out, I don't have any real emails to read, but I did get a little message from Shag, the irredeemable one. Uh, He was uh, chatting with me when we recorded our latest episode of Who True Freaks, which should be coming out, oh, probably in a week or so, I think, by the time this is posted. We believe wobbly timey-wimey. But he was very kind in his uh, statement about the uh, Bo Smith interview. He said he really enjoyed it, said it was one of the... uh, more professional interviews that he heard about for a comic book creator. And that's high praise because I know he and Rob Kelly over at the Aquaman Shrine have talked with uh, Dan Jurgens and have uh, talked with uh, various creators. I know Shag's done a lot with, uh, I want to say he's done interviews with Jerry Ordway simply because of the fireman, fire, fireman, firestorm thing. But uh, I really appreciated that Shag, a person that uh, I really hold in high esteem in the podcasting world, you know, actually, said nice things about the interview that I did with Bo Smith. So thanks, Shag. I appreciate that. Uh, But since no emails, I'm going ahead and go directly into my coverage of Green Lantern number 85. Green Lantern 85 was cover dated April 1997 and released on February 5th, 1997. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for that. Cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was Retribution Part 3. 
The writer, again, was Ron Mars. Pencilers this time out were Daryl Banks and Stephen J.B. Jones. Inkers were Romeo Tangal and Terry Austin. Colors was Pamela Rambo. Letterer Chris Eliopoulos. Associate Editor Edric Berganza. And Editor Kevin Dooley. Struggling against alien tentacles, which hopefully aren't trying to sodomize his various orifices, Kyle Rayner gasps one breath of air before he's pulled under again by his unseen assailant. The powerless lantern is pulled to the surface to see the snarling maw of the being that's trying to make a midday snack out of him, but fortunately he also sees a pile of jagged bones laying beneath it. Grabbing at one of the discarded remains, Kyle plunges a honed humerus into the... eye maybe, of the alien. Surprised that his prey was actually fighting back, the beast retreated to its cave, leaving a shocked Kyle to gather himself up. With his ring out of power, very little hand-to-hand combat training, and only a pointed stick, like someone who attacks you with a pointed stick, to defend himself from fatality, things aren't looking too bright for our hero. However, not everything is turning up dog shit as Kyle runs across the crashed ship of the female fighter that was stalking him. His weapon at the ready, Kyle sneaks onto the ship, and only to find a predator-like trophy room containing the spoils that Fatality had taken from the lanterns that she has murdered. Kyle grabs a relic Green Lantern battery in hopes that he can bump a charge off of it, but since this lantern was powered by the energy found on Oa, Kyle can't charge his ring on it. Moving on, Kyle sees the pilot's chair and a trail of blood leading away from it. Hoping that Fatality's injury will make her easier to deal with, Kyle follows the trail to a recent pool of her blood and promptly gets jumped by the still-standing Fatality. Kyle tries to reason with her, but the grudge she has against the Lanterns causes her to start up the book's prerequisite Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, which Kyle reluctantly reciprocates in. The two each get in brutal hits, with Kyle still trying to reason with the vengeful vixen, but in the end, Kyle's explanation of the grief that Jon Stewart felt for allowing Zanchi to be destroyed isn't enough to sway Fatality. Saying that Kyle should be honored that she will dine on his flesh as she slowly kills him, Fatality pulls Kyle's lantern from the nearby murk to taunt him with it one last time. But before she can make good on her claim, the Dianoga returns and wraps the duo up in its tentacles. As the creature gets ready to devour the two, Kyle begs for Fatality to give him back the lantern so he can save them both. Fatality refuses and tosses the lantern aside, forcing Kyle to cut his way out of the tentacle. Dropping to the ground, Kyle makes a desperate search for his foe, but only finds a severed limb lying near the opening where the creature came through. Bemoaning the futility of it all, Kyle silently sits and wonders why. Cut to the rooftop of Kyle's apartment are awaiting Donna Troy and Jon Stewart stand. The former Wonder Girl is concerned that Kyle might not make it back, but Jon assures her that Kyle will return. And as if on cue, Kyle flies back to the rooftop with his lantern in hand and knowledge that even without its power, he will still strive to remain a hero. Throughout the entirety of this issue, very little dialogue spoken aloud. Most of the dialogue we get in here is in caption boxes relating Kyle's thoughts and how he's trying to remain heroic in the face of having to possibly take another person's life. At the beginning of the story, we get the notion that the ring allowed Kyle to do things non-lethally. We found that a couple issues ago when this whole retribution line started. And now that he's without the ring, can he keep that code of not killing in the face of all that's going on? 
It's an interesting concept that really helps define a lot of the heroes of the DC universe. Some characters are willing to kill to meet their end goals, others are not. And Kyle being relatively new to the hero stuff and having to fend, him, fend for his life without his quote-unquote superpowers really makes for an interesting story and an interesting idea. Can Kyle bring himself to kill someone, even though that's not in his heroic mold, if you would say? Uh, it's an interesting story that they put forth, and I think it's resolved very well here. But that finishes off my general notes. Going on to specific notes, I might as well start off with the cover, which I think would be a cover that would entice female readers to come and pick up this book. It's a, a very hunky, somewhat shirtless Kyle Rayner looking all muscly and holding a couple of bones that look like swords here. He's, he's essentially Kyle the Barbarian, and by Crom, he he looks uh, pretty bad. The mask is kind of silly, though, with without the shirt on, but I guess this is a little uh, cheesecake shot for the ladies. However, uh, the science guy in me just wonders where the heck these bones came from. I, I know they're supposed to be the bones of an alien, but they've got to come from specific parts of an alien. It, it looks from the way the one... Kyle is holding in his left hand that that might be a a femur or maybe a humerus because it's got a sort of bald head at one end. And the other one has teeth on it, but it's a really long sort of almost a spear-like thing that also has a uh, bald end on the other side. So it's just a weird, probably not anatomically correct series of uh, bones from anything that you would even know. In fact, it doesn't even look like it would be some, from something alien as well. But just go with it. You know, Kyle needs it to defend himself and be all muscly. So there you go. Pages two and three, we get a really nice, like, page and a half splash that sort of defines the alien that Kyle is being attacked by. And it's a really interesting design. It's kind of, kind of a cross between a lobster and an octopus and sort of has the face of the predator. Uh, but the inset panel on page three, where Kyle's being drawn into the alien's maw, looks a bit off. From the two-page, or the page-and-a-half splash we have, it doesn't look like the monster is that much bigger. But when we get to this little inset panel here, as Kyle's being drawn into his mouth, his teeth look enormous. So there's a bit of perspective differences between these two panels. So, yeah, just a little bit of wonkiness in the art. Page four, I think this is where Stephen Jones takes over his pencils, and it's not that Jones has a bad art style, it kind of mimics Daryl Banks, but the facial expressions or the facial look is a little off. In fact, uh, Kyle's face looks a little wonky with sometimes his eyes being differently sized, and it's good artwork, but it just, uh, like I said, it looks a little wonky. and. It doesn't take you out of the book as much as the previous issue of Flash, Green Lantern, Faster Friends did, but it is something that, if you're looking at it, you'll notice it a bit more. Page 5. I don't know when the next Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror episode is coming out, but in that, in that episode we covered the movie Zombie by Lucio Fulci, and in there there was a scene where a woman got her basically got her eye poked out with a giant splinter of wood and 
it was just one of those really creepy horror scenes. And I mentioned in that story how uncomfortable it made me feel. And I get the same feeling here as Kyle is jabbing one of the uh, pointy bones into the uh, alien's eye or whatever it is on his head. It's, uh, it's all kinds of icky. Page 7, I don't think I mentioned in the last episode where I was talking about Vitality's ship, but I kind of want to mention it here. Her ship was colored yellow, which wouldn't make sense if she was taking out Green Lanterns prior to the whole destruction of Oa and Kyle being the last lantern thing, but now it really isn't all that effective. But it makes sense that she would have a yellow ship during the time that the Green Lantern Corps was around, so I thought I'd just point that out and make sure you guys knew about that. Page 8, I find it kind of creepy that Fatality and her ship has essentially a Predator 2 trophy wall with um, either the uniforms or maybe even the mounted heads of some of the Green Lantern. It looks like uh, she actually has a desiccated corpse of one of the Green Lanterns standing up here. and None of them are, uh, you know, 100% identifiable, but one of the weird things is she also has a uh, Dark Star emblem as well, so maybe one of the Green Lanterns, like Madball Head, that was a... With, turned into a dark stars been one of her victims as well so you take what you can get i guess but then on page nine kyle tries to uh, charge his ring on one of the uh, lanterns that's on the trophy wall it was a good idea unfortunately of course because this lantern was connected to the energy from oa and wasn't kyle's battery you know he wasn't able to charge from it so it was a good effort i guess and you gotta try whatever you can whenever you're desperate page 12 pen of four kyle in having to fight with fatality and trying to defend himself actually gets in a good hit on her with one of the uh, bone weapons i think the one with the teeth or whatever but uh it's showing that even though kyle doesn't have the ring in a last ditch situation he's going to try and fight it out but in the next on the next page in the next panel he's looking at uh what he did and how he cut her open and the blood on the uh, bone weapon and he's kind of shocked he's not used to having to fight people and actually if not physically injure them at least cut them or draw blood uh like was mentioned before in the previous issue kyle usually took people out non-lethally and now he's might actually have to end up killing this person and it's a concern to him which is a great part of his character and the fact that he doesn't want to resort to killing unless he has to. Then moving on to page 17, probably not Kyle's brightest moment in trying to reason with fatality, he basically rats Jon Stewart out. I think if he would have kept his mouth shut, uh, you would have been the last GL she would have to have hunted down, and maybe you could have saved Jon Stewart's life, but Thankfully, it didn't work out that way, but yeah, Kyle, not cool to rat out on your friend, especially when you've got a psycho girl gunning for Green Lanterns, and especially since John was the one who essentially caused her to be the psycho girl. Page 18, and after all the antagonism from Fatality, it wouldn't be an actual ending of her monologuing viciousness unless she brought out the lantern and sort of shoved it in Kyle's face, saying, yeah, 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 this is what you needed, and you're not going to be able to get it because I'm going to kill you. It's always that sort of... 
that overconfidence of the antagonist that always leads to their downfall. Page 19, I just wanted to comment on the art again on this page. The the art took a really good upswing near the end of this book, and here on this page, Kyle looks really good. His facial features look a lot more angular. They don't look as rounded as when uh, Banks is drawing them, but it might also be the fact that Terry Austin is inking him, and Austin might have a little lighter touch on the inks because uh, Kyle and Fatality on this issue, and especially on the final panel on this page, Kyle looks really good in this. So could be that Austin just did a better job at inking than Romeo Tangal. Could be that Jones had a little bit more time to get these panels done. Either way, the artwork took a big upswing on these past few pages. Page 21, panel 4. At the end of this book, you see the creature going back down into the cave and Kyle looking at something here on panel 4. And if I had not read other synopses of this story, I wouldn't have known that that's supposed to be Fatality's severed arm. It looks like he's looking at something, and if you look a little closer, you can tell it's her arm. But they don't show it. It's in a really small panel, and it's from really high above. So I think nowadays Kyle would pick it up, and it would be dripping blood, and there would be sinews coming out of it, and... It would be all gross, and this is just really subtly done, and you don't really catch it unless you are actually looking for it. So, again, kudos to subtlety. And then finally, on page 22, Kyle's back in New York, and now we're going to be treated to tons and tons of stories about Donna and Kyle's growing relationship leading up to their eventual marriage. That's sarcasm, if you didn't know. Anywho, this was a good issue. I enjoyed it. Uh, it's a nice wrap-up to uh, the storyline that introduces probably one of the uh, best threats for Kyle Rayner in this series. So I enjoyed it, and uh, I hope you guys did too. Definitely go, uh, if you can find this in the dollar bin or in the 50-cent bin, it's definitely worth a read. So go check it out if you haven't. Unfortunately, I don't think this has been collected yeah, and doing a quick check of Mike's, uh, it hasn't been collected. So go search it out in the 50 cent pins. Now, last week, I forgot to do the ads because I thought I could do it in the uh, second episode or the second issue, which usually has ads. But since it's a prestige format book, there are no ads in it. So we're going to take a look at the ads in this book and see what kind of 90s stuff there is to be sold. On the front inside cover, it's a kind of neat picture. It says, first Batman, then Superman, now the entire DC Universe. Adventures in the DC Universe, and it's a very Mike Parabek-looking uh, version of uh, the characters in the DC Universe, and you get the major ones. You get Aquaman, Batman, Green Lantern, Plastic Man, Superman, Flash, Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman. It's all essentially the Justice League Unlimited characters prior to Justice League Unlimited being done. Uh, it's drawn, it's written by Stephen Vance and illustrated by John Delaney and Ron Boyd. I don't know how long this ran, but I can only assume it probably led into the uh, Justice League series, which came after the uh, final episodes of Superman the Animated Series. So, And it's pretty cool because it looks like all the characters that eventually ended up in the uh, Justice League Animated Series are here. Well, I, I see the Connor Hawk, Green Arrow. I don't know if he was... I don't think he was in there. And I also see the Ray in here. I don't think the Ray was specifically in there and is that yeah I think that might be also Dark Star John Stewart as well I mean John Stewart was a member of the 
Justice League animated show. But of course, he was Green Lantern. And of course, in the back, way back there, there's Phantom Stranger being all creepy. Probably has some poutine with him. A few pages in, we get massive, chiseled, ripped Legend of the Dark Knight premium collector series figures. And we've got one of the Scarecrow. We've got Batman with creepy red bat wings. Uh, we've got a Bane figure and various Batmans with different colors. I think we've also even got a, it looks like an Asbat figure. I don't know if it is, but he's got really spiky, long dagger things on the uh, scallops of his gloves. So, yeah, there you go. Legend of the Dark Knight action figures. And, of course, following that up, we have the uh, house ad for Asriel Among Bad Men not bad men among mad men which has an interesting uh picture of the joker i think it's uh i think it's drawn by barry kitson i've got to assume that's who it is but it's a story written by denny o'neill so denny o'neill doing the joker always has to be fun then after that we get another house ad for life's a beach kick some butt black canary oracle birds of prey revolution which has a uh well, she's still not wearing the fishnets, but a much better costume, Black Canary. Basically, it looks like, I want to say it looks like she's kicking some Nazis on a beach uh, filled with, though, rather scantily clad, and even a kind of a uh, couple of kind of uh, tubby people in there. So it's nice that it's not just all the beautiful people hanging out at the beach. There's some guy underneath Black, or behind Black Canary in the water who's, uh, not the most physically fit so it's a good looking stuff it's written by chuck dixon so you know it has to be awesome with art by stefano Raphael and bob mcleod so it's a one shot that came out in february uh, it looks like interesting stuff then on the next page we get a house ad for uh, wonder woman and i guess this is the big wonder woman 120 with john byrne uh, ruth morrison jill thompson brian boland and nick carty celebrating diana's epic past and startling future and yeah, there's Diana there, and I think that's Steve Trevor in the background, and Queen Hippolyta in there. And in the background, looming large, is the face of Darkseid, because I guess Darkseid is incredibly bad. Yeah. Then moving on, we get a subscription ad, of course, and of course, the subscription ad is for what else? But the Batman books, including Shadow the Bat, Batman Detective Comics, so... Oh, and the Batman Chronicles as well. So I guess you get uh, 12 issues of Batman and uh, the uh, quarterly issues of the Batman Chronicles for uh, $45 for the year. So I guess that's not too bad. 16 issues for $45. It could be worse. I know if you're buying the uh, Villains United or whatever stuff, you're paying about that for, oh, three issues maybe. Maybe I'm overstating it, but still. $7.99 issue, get out of town. And man, it's all house ads this time. And the next uh, page is an ad for Power of Shazam, which is by Jerry Ordway, Krauss, and Manley. It's a three-part story called Family Reunion. I guess uh, Mary Marvel and uh, is that CM3 coming back? So yeah, it's it's a nice Ordway image, I think. Yeah. And plus, uh, it's got Dr. Savannah running for mayor of Fawcett City wow people would actually vote for him well i guess i guess more evil people have been uh, put into elected office you make your own judgment calls there and of course we have one more house ad for 
something that is shocking. This time, we've changed more than his hair, and it's for the Electric Blue Superman. Yes, that time period in DC Comics where Superman became a being of pure energy and got his electric blue containment suit. If you want to hear more about this, actually go check out uh, back episodes of Charlie's Geek Cast. Uh, he covered the uh, JLA, JLA series written by Grant Morrison, which uh, covered a lot of these stories, and he kind of went into a better explanation of what the heck was going on with Superman at this time. And speaking of JLA, the next page is another house ad featuring the heroes of the JLA. You've got the uh, Magnificent Seven with uh, Batman, Green, Batman, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, Flash, Aquaman, and Superman. They're all there in Morrison's JLA before Morrison got all crazy and weird. Some would say he was always crazy and weird, but he toned it down a bit for the JLA. And then Ah, holy cow, it's all the house ads this time. This is an Elseworld story for the Titans' Scissors Paper Stone, which it says it's set in the 80th century, and it's got varying different types of Titans, with the uh, faces of uh, Robin, Raven, and Starfire, and Cyborg down at the bottom, and it's got a sort of anime style. It's not quite the uh, Teen Titans series that we'd see on Cartoon Network yet, but... It does have that sort of feel. It's uh, one shot by Adam Warren and I guess art by Tom Simmons, so interesting stuff. Then the back outside cover, speaking of Cartoon Network, is an advertisement for Quest Roll Adventure, the uh, Johnny Quest storyline, or the Johnny Quest cartoon that was airing on Cartoon Network. Hmm, this was the uh, brand new Johnny Quest. I think I mentioned a couple of episodes back, so Johnny Quest, he was back with a something. Anyhow, that finishes up notes for this issue. I'm going to take a quick break, go get a drink, and plug a few promos in here for a couple of podcasts. And when I get back, I'll start in on coverage of Green Lantern, Flash, or I guess this time out it's Flash Green Lantern, Faster Friends, Part 2. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Neymar and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... I am 
job for Superman. Do you remember Power Rangers? Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots transform. Or this? By the power of Grayskull. Or for the honor of Grayskull. Or have you seen the latest episode of Hello, I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's Geekcast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's Geekcast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully... And we are back to take a look at the second book in the show today, Flash Green Lantern Faster Friends Part 2. It was cover dated 1997 and released on December 18, 1996. Again, this information comes from the ever-amazing Mike's World of DC Comics. Go check it out. This time it has a title, which uh, is entitled End Run. The writers were Mark Wade and Brian Augustin. The penciler was Val Semeckis. Inker was Chip Wallace. Colorist Ian Lawlin. Separator was Android Images. Letterer Albert Guzman. Cover was by Dave Johnson. And editor was Paul Coverberg. Carrying his girlfriend Linda in his arms, Holly West, better known as the fastest man alive, The Flash, arrives at the hospital where Joan Garrick is awaiting news about her husband's condition. Wally relates what happened with Alien X in the last issue, with the final result being the alien taking its own life. As soon as Wally finishes the tale, Jay enters the room and gives the assembled the bad news. With his age and prolonged uses of his hypermetabolism, Jay only has hours left to live. The elder Flash tries to soften the blow by saying he didn't want to frighten his wife, but Joan is having none of it as she storms out of the room. Jay starts to go after her, but is sidetracked by a news report showing hordes of aliens attacking across the globe. Wally and Jay now know that the self-destruct was more than just a way to end the alien's life. It was also a summons for these hordes of beasts. Cut to the Arctic Circle, where Jay and Wally are speeding back to the half-buried alien ship. The speedsters meet up with the Green Lanterns, Alan Scott and Kyle Rayner, who have also come back to the ship to try and find a way to shut down the portals. The heroes enter and find it up and running. Wally speeds around, activating all the buttons he can until he gets a hologram of the attacking aliens with some strange dialogue accompanying it. Wally asks if Kyle can translate it, which Kyle can't, but he can do the next best thing. Interpreting the images, Kyle says that the aliens are like cockroaches or ants. They just come to the planet, overrun it, and leave after destroying all life on it. And just as Kyle finishes filling the heroes in, a portal opens up and the aliens begin streaming out. Jay and Wally try and bottleneck the portal while Kyle sees it, seals it up with a construct plunger. But Kyle can't remain pleased with himself for too long as more portals start appearing. Kyle and Wally leap through the portal to take the fight to the source while Jay takes a quick moment to give a super speed farewell kiss to his wife. Speeding back, the elder heroes leap through separate portals to engage the aliens on their own turf. On the distant alien planet, the Scarlet Speedster attempts to overcome the interdimensional jet lag when he spies a citadel in the distance. 
Hoping this is where he needs to go, the Flash begins to run, but somehow he's not running at super speed. Wondering if the heat might be affecting him, the Flash pulls off his cowl to reveal Kyle Rayner underneath. At the same time, Wally West is in the Green Lantern uniform, having the same problem accessing his powers. The two make their separate paths to their destination until we witness Wally Lantern getting attacked by some of the remaining aliens on the planet. Luckily, Alan Scott arrives to save Wally's bacon and tries to make him see that he's not actually Green Lantern. Realizing that time is of the essence, the two head out, with Alan carrying Wally Lantern in a construct chariot. At the same time, Jay encounters a slowly moving Flash Rainer and is also puzzled by the youth's claim that he's actually the Flash. There's a lot of back and forth between the mixed up heroes until they finally realize that somehow they've been switched as they meet up at the strange structure. The youth exchange ring and uniforms and head inside to find a pulsating brain-like creature that is absorbing all the energy that the alien hordes siphon from their victims. The hive mind begins to recall all the alien hordes home in order to absorb their energy to take out the four invading heroes, but it appears that all the attacking the Lanterns have been doing against the Hive Mind has made it question the veracity of continuing the attack against them. With Jay speaking to the alien on its own vibrational frequency, he convinces it to cease its attack and leave for parts unknown. Crisis averted, the heroes prepare to head home, thanks to four individual portals left for them by the Hive Mind. Alan postulates that if he goes to the same portal at the same time with Jay, his youth and lanterny magic might melt with him, like the way Wally and Kyle melded when they went through together. But Jay is stubborn and ever and speeds off toward the waiting rift. Alan, of course, zooms in after him and catches up just in time for the pair to enter at the same time. The youth then follow in separate portals and exit back on Earth to find their elder counterparts still in the land of the living. Some time has passed, and the group is meeting back at the hospital. The doctor enters and says that Jay's disease is gone, and Alan is healthy as well, because shut up, it's a comic book. Wally and Kyle don't share the same manly celebration, which amuses Alan and Jay. The elders say that despite their differences, Green Lantern and the Flash were always meant to be friends. And when those two figure it out, they might be the greatest team of all. Even though this was a relatively long synopsis, I skipped over a lot of scenes in the book. Wade and Augustine do a great job of telling a story about how the heroes are different, but it was all a bit wordy for the synopsis. And I will admit, even though I love Ron Mars as a writer, and when he's writing Green Lantern, it's always excellent, I enjoyed this story a little bit more. Uh, I think the book feels a lot more cohesive, specifically because not only did they have, well, just the two writers here with Wade and Augustine being that but they had the one artist on here so the book has artistically a more cohesive feel than the last Faster Friends which maybe for aesthetic purposes since they're showing different eras was supposed to be different artistically but this book just feels more cohesive to me but yeah there was a lot of stuff in the middle of the book with 
Wally and Kyle being sort of misplaced or switched around in their uniforms or their beliefs of who they are, that just really didn't necessitate me talking about in the synopsis. You know, it's mixed identity, which essentially gave the uh, scientific reason for uh, Alan and Jay being able to go through the portal and heal each other. So it's, it's science. Go with it. And speaking of go with it, we'll go ahead and go with it and on the cover. Uh, the cover is, again, done by Dave Johnson. And if you take the two books, uh, Faster Friends Part 1 and 2, and push them together, it's one of those split covers that uh, comes together. On this side, uh, it looks like it's the Alien X, but now he's in a more skeletal form, uh, obviously because he blew himself uh, up in the uh, last episode. And... I don't know. Again, Johnson's artwork is okay here, but if he's inking himself, he really does a thick job of inking the outlines. Uh, it's not bad, but it's just really thick inking, and it makes the characters look a little stocky. So, uh, not the best cover, but a decent one, I guess. Pages two and three, we get Wally recapping what on what went on in the prior issue, which is kind of nice because I should have just gone and read this for my synopsis for the last episode and it probably wouldn't have been as long as wordy as I usually make it sorry then on page four we get the reveal of Jay saying that he doesn't have long left long left to live and it's a really great image I I don't know what Val Semeckis has done or much of what he's done or whether he worked on the flash very much but he does a great job of rendering Jay here uh, Jay looks a little bit more muscular than he did in the previous issue. In the other issue, when the artists were drawing him, he was more sort of thin. But it's a great image here, and it's really touching. Joan in the background as well just tore up by the fact that her husband has real revealed to her that because of his heroic actions, he's going to die, and not only die, but very soon. So, yeah, it's it's a tough thing to deal with and they capture it really well on the page. Page 5, panel 2, we get Linda, who came along with Wally, uh, chiding him for uh, being like Jay and keeping secrets. Now, unfortunately, I don't know all that much about the uh, Wally West storyline in The Flash, but I'm assuming, and I'm hoping, that this will be something that eventually Dave Walker will get to on his Flash Legacies podcast. Maybe I'll have to contact Dave and see what he has to say about this, and what the relationship between Linda and Wally was all about. Page six, we get the stereotypical expositional news network thing of the news covering the aliens popping up all around the world. In fact, in some really strange areas where there shouldn't be cameras at all to catch any of this alien invasion stuff, especially uh, in the middle of Africa, uh, not so much in Japan. I could see there being cameras around in that, but the weirdest one is a field in Scotland where there is a sort of elderly man herding some sheep. Why there would be a camera around catching alien invasions in Scotland where sheep herding is going on is really beyond me, but there it is. And of course, the final panel is the aliens invading at a Mammoth Studios production of an alien invasion movie and everyone thinks it's just really good special effects so nice little pun there visual pun 
then on the next page, page seven, we see the various heroes of Earth fighting the aliens, and we've got Superman and Wonder Woman fighting them. We've got Captain Marvel as well. And one of the neat ones in this third panel is we see the Martian Manhunter fighting off these aliens. And one of the neat things that we see and that we don't really see that often with him is he's using his Martian vision, which I guess is a lot like heat vision as he's burning these aliens with beams out of his eyes. And it's it's really cool. But unfortunately, the image is sort of... The panel is kind of weird because right up above him, it's Aquaman... The uh, the sort of 90s long-haired harpoon hand Aquaman fighting off the aliens as well. And Aquaman is obviously swimming because as he slashes his harpoon hand, you see the sort of bubble trails you know, going on with that. So is Martian Manhunter underwater with Aquaman fighting these aliens? It's just a weird composition on this page. Eh. But at least we get to see Martian Manhunter using his Martian vision, which is which is cool. Page 8, the only note I have here is, like the last issue, which was predominantly a Green Lantern issue, since this issue is being written by Mark Wayne and is predominantly a Flash issue, a lot of the caption boxes feature uh, inner monologues from Wally West. It's kind of neat to have Wally describing what's going on, and however, it's pretty much just Wally bitching about how much he doesn't like Kyle Rayner. So, eh, you take what you can get. And speaking of Wally being irritated by Kyle, on page 11, we get a monologue that Wally claims that Kyle doesn't understand the value of a legacy, and that really irks him. You know, I, I don't agree with that, because I think Kyle completely understands the legacy of this character. It's just that he's doing it his own way, and I think Wally is sort of fixated on the fact that he's been doing it exactly the same as he think Barry would, and since Kyle is being his own person, I think Wally thinks that Kyle is disrespecting the idea of the Green Lantern, when in all honesty, Kyle has a real sense that he's having to take on a real responsibility for being the Green Lantern. I don't think he's shirking the... uh, legacy of the character he's just doing in a way that's not exactly the same as the uh, prior Green Lantern so it's a little statement I think Wally just was wrong on then on page 12 panel 2 after Wally and Kyle are bickering about you know who's being the better hero and all this Alan Scott the elder statesman is able to shut them up with three words excuse me children Yes, this is Dad telling you to shut up in the back seat. And Alan Scott is right. They're acting like little juveniles, and I'm glad that he called them out on it. Alan Scott is awesome. Pages 14 and 15, we get the inner little interlude with Linda and Joan back at her house and how she deals with being the uh, wife of a superhero, especially the wife of a superhero who has told her that he's eventually going to die and not eventually but very soon going to die and it's a great little bit of emotion in the story and it's a great little bit of sort of real life because this is how families have to deal with times of tragedy and times of loss and it's not happening because nowadays in the DC universe people aren't supposed to 
the marriage concept in the new DC universe has been tossed away. People aren't married anymore, and it just galls me. It, it irks me that the idea that heroes can't have times of joy and can't have times of tragedy and can't have times together, it, it, it frustrates me. It, I don't like the idea that heroes can't be happy or can't have can't have marriages i guess i think that makes the characters real but it's the current regime and it's the way it's going to be so i'm dealing with it by not really reading much of it there you go then we've got pages 17 through 29 which is basically the whole swapping identity thing it's interesting it makes for the characters have to sort of walk in the other character's shoes kind of see what they have to deal with but if we're to be honest it's really only there to set up the sort of pseudoscience thing at the end of the book Uh, but there's a few things in there like on page 18 it's weird because wally's hair color changes a lot in the book i don't know whether they just didn't get the coloring down but i always thought that wally was kind of a redhead at least, you know, not like bright Jimmy Olsen, but his hair was maybe a strawberry blonde or something like that. Throughout this book, it changes from the sort of reddish hair to a lot blonder, and he looks really blonde here, so that's really weird. Uh, page 23, panel 3. I think this is kind of amusing. We see uh, Jay encounter Kyle Flash, and uh, Kyle, of course, thinks he's the Flash, and he's trying to run, and uh, Jake uh, sort of speeds by him and then slows down and is kind of super speed walking by him. And I just thought that was kind of amusing that, yeah, the Flash can speed walk even faster than normal people can run. It's an amusing little panel. Then on page 32, we get the shot of the alien that's been causing all these little creepy horde monsters to attack the Earth. And it's, of course, a giant pulsating pink brain thing so yeah not really original on the uh, alien concept design and again there's more pseudoscience on page 36 that jay and wally can quote unquote and i'm using air quotes up to the microphone feel the vibrational transmissions of the alien brain you know it's it's just a way to get the storytelling device It's good writing, but it just kind of feels like a means to an end. And then on page 38, while the other heroes are still attacking, Jay is trying to reason with the alien since he can relate to the idea of having something inside of him fighting against it. Jay is relating to the cancer or the disease that's eating his body up, and he's relating to the alien brain slug thing who has these heroes inside trying to destroy it, and He's trying to, well, he's trying to talk to the alien rather than try and fight it. He's trying to communicate and reason with it, which is, which is a great part of the sort of heroic ideal that I think the, that these characters embody. Then on page 42, after the alien has gone off to who knows where, we get the explanation that because Kyle and Wally went through the one portal at the same time and all the aliens that were coming to Earth through the portals were all just basically the same thing. Since the two characters went through at the same time, it was kind of like a transporter accident, and 
it makes their molecules and all this. So if Jay and Alan go through at the same time, maybe it'll mix their molecules and they'll all come out better and blah, blah, blah. It's science. So, yeah. Comic book science, folks. Well at hand. But that's about it for my notes on the book. It was a fun couple issues, a nice little prestige format book. I think this has been reprinted, and I think it uh, was probably one of those 90s reprints for a trade paperback that would probably, again, be easier for you to find in the actual you know, prestige format books. I'm certain you can find these on eBay or probably at your local comic book shop. So a good read, not one of the best crossovers ever, but you know, fun enough. And it's always nice to see the uh, older generation trying to teach the younger generation a thing or two. Something I know about quite a bit. But that does it for the books of this time. Next time out, obviously, we're going to be covering another Green Lantern book, number 86, where there's going to be a big change. Kyle is uh, meeting up with Jade, Alan Scott's daughter, and, uh, well, things are going to go south with uh, Kyle and Donna very quickly. Not because uh, I think Ron Mars wanted it to, I think because uh, more editorial meddling and more probably writer meddling more so than that. Plus, uh, we're going to be taking a look at another Bo Smith penned Guy Gardner story. What do you say? Bo Smith already finished up his run on Guy Gardner. Well, actually, he did a couple extra stories in some of the Showcase 96 volumes. And I went and tracked down Showcase 96, number one and number two, which has a crossover event with Guy Gardner and Steel in it. So over the next couple episodes, we'll be covering that along with the Green Lantern books. So we've got more Bo Smith goodness on the way. I can't wait for it. So thanks everyone for listening. Thanks everyone for downloading and be sure to come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks podcast network. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast.
The opening music for the show is the Beatles classic with a little help from my friends, off Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. If you want to buy this album, if you don't actually have it in your library anyway, the best place to go to buy it is Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is through the link at the Two True Freaks website. If you go to the website at twotruefreaks.com and click on the banner on the upper left corner of the homepage, you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you could buy the Beatles album, buy the Beatles song, or buy any Beatles merchandise that you like. You can also buy electronics, TVs, video games. You can buy Kindle Fires, tons of stuff at Amazon.com, all for some of the best prices around. And every time you use the link at twotruefreaks.com, a small amount of money goes back to help the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really, really helps us out. So make sure if you're going to be doing any shopping at Amazon, make sure you go through the link at twotruefreaks.com. 